We're starting a new series this morning. I'm really excited about it. We are doing an in-depth study called The Blessing, and we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham. And as we're jumping in, I was reminded of an occurrence in my early life. I was 14 years old. We were actually coming back from Indianapolis, Indiana. I had had a heart procedure done in a hospital there, and my family had driven up in our RV. And so we're leaving that, and it actually, we had gotten some really good news after that procedure. And so we're driving on a country road, uh, making our way slowly back to Texas. And as we're driving, my dad was always drove like a real gentleman. And so if someone would come up fast behind us, he'd pull over under the shoulder to let them pass. Well, I'll never forget, as a car's passing us and dad's pulling into the shoulder in our RV, all of a sudden his eyes grow large and he yells out, hold on. And I remember him struggling with the wheel. And what had happened was a freak accident where our steering column broke and he could no longer control the RV. And so our momentum, as we were already pulling to the right, just pulled us off the road. Now, that shouldn't have been a problem as we're in the country, except the road was really built up, and there were six-foot ditches on either side. So immediately, we careened down into a ditch, and in front of us, to our horror, we saw a big steel and concrete culvert. And so going about 60 miles an hour, straight out of a movie, we actually hit the culvert, and it launched us in the air. So we went airborne in our RV. Now, back in that day, that was 30 years ago, you didn't have to wear seatbelts in an RV. And so I'm sitting in one of the front seats in one of the captain's chairs. Dad's in the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat. And when we hit that culvert, it slowed us down, but my body didn't slow down. This is why we wear seatbelts. So I actually flew forward, knocked the windshield out with my head. And I'm actually flying out of the vehicle. I'll never forget actually looking down and seeing the grass outside of the vehicle, and I'm in shock, and everything just slowed down, so I'm actually having this thought. I'm going, I cannot believe that I'm about to die. After I just made it through that surgery in the hospital, now this is what is going to kill me. All I can say is at that moment, I experienced a divine pull. Something reached out, grabbed me, and threw me back into the seat totally unexplainably. The RV lands on the ground, drives back over the road, and lands on its side. We get up and look, and two of my family members are out on the ground. My grandmother's actually knocked out. Immediately, the ambulance, ambulances come and take us back to the hospital. But as I get up and, and surmise the damage done to me and look, I don't even have a scratch on me. I had knocked out a windshield of an RV, gone through it, been pulled back, and now was standing without a scratch. When we're following God, when we are his children, we experience in life something I call the divine pull. And that's what we see on the life of Abraham, that your life is not just a series of happenstances, of random circumstances. There is actually a divine being. His name is the Lord, and his hand is on 
your life. And so we want to look at Abraham, known as the father of our faith, and dive into his life because he is one that God blessed. And I want to tell you, when you step into Abraham's line, which we all do when we put our faith in Jesus and become children of God, we actually inherit his blessings. So we're going to be starting today in the 11th and 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, and I encourage you to go ahead and open that up. And let me just tell you this. As we're going through this series, I highly encourage you to be studying the Bible with us, not just coming on Sundays and hearing it. A, a study came out this past week that I just read about that people that actually give themselves to the study of God's Word, they actually, actually intently look at it and apply it to their life, they have been shown to actually have less stress in life. They also show that they have increased hope and the ability to forgive. In the study, it showed 50% of Americans have actually experienced some kind of personal trauma in the last two years. But people who study the Word of God have a greater resilience to go through that trauma and actually come out with hope on the other side. Let me encourage you, let's be a people of the Word of God. And here's the thing about Abraham as we start looking at his life. He's not just in the book of Genesis. Now, 12 whole chapters are devoted to study his life, so this is awesome. But you will see his life. In order to really be a student of the Bible, you're going to see Abraham over and over and over again. Listen to how many books he's mentioned in. He's not just in Genesis, where it tells his whole story, but he's in Exodus. He's in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Micah. So you got to understand this man named Abraham to understand the Old Testament, but he doesn't stop there. Also, every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention Abraham. The book of Acts mentions him, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter. Why? Because if there's one thing that Abraham is known for, it's this phrase, Abraham was a friend of God. Isn't it mind-boggling that the creator of the universe, he actually spoke and flung stars into space. He put the world in motion. The creator of the majestic mountains, the vast ocean, that he actually has time for you. And not just time, he wants to be your friend. And as I read that phrase again and again, as I've been looking at the life of Abraham, my heart, I mean, it actually I felt something in it leaping, kind of like that first moment I saw Stephanie. I, um, <clears throat> big points I hope I got from that. <laughs> I, I, I felt this just expectancy, this excitement of, wow, God, you're actually calling me. You're actually calling all my friends and all peoples into a friendship. God wants to be your friend. This isn't just a religion. This isn't just something we study. This isn't just something that you do on Sundays. The living God wants to be every single one of your friends. And he is divinely pulling you in the, into that today. So let's look at the first time where we see Abraham mentioned. It actually It'll start with calling him Abram because God, as he so often does with people he's close to, he changes his name later to Abraham. So it starts with 
this in Genesis eleven twenty seven. This is the account of Terah's family line. So who's Terah? Terah is the father of Abraham. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So Abram has a couple of brothers, Nahor and Haran. And Haran became, uh, Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, so remember that phrase, Ur of the Chaldeans. This is going to be an important thing to note. Uh, many of us know we have friends that are Chaldeans. There's many Chaldeans that live in our area. That's actually Iraq is the current place of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so this is where their family originated, Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Now, she will become Sarah, <laughs> Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now, that will be an important thing to note later in this story, but that's for another Sunday. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Now remember that. They're going to leave Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So let me paint the picture for you. Terah is a wealthy shepherd. He has this big family. Abram's one of the sons. They're in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now for you to get your mind wrapped around this, Ur of the Chaldeans was really the New York City or the Los Angeles or the, the Tokyo or London or Paris of the day. It was the epicenter of culture. It was the seat of of government. It was a place of higher learning. The citizens were skilled. I mean, this is in the very beginning of civilization, but people were skilled in mathematics, astronomy. They were skilled in agriculture. They actually, you know, so this, this is kind of like, think of Elon Musk's of the day would have been here. They, they actually had written tablets, actually. So think about Steve Jobs. They actually had the first tablet there. And, and, and so this was a place where, where the world and the world's wisdom and the world's prosperity was, was flourishing. And it's interesting because they actually are going to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, why would this family, and this, this family, Terah was actually a wealthy shepherd. He lived out in the suburbs, out in the green pastures. Why did they actually leave? Well, we'll get into that in a few moments. But for you to understand, this city had you know, 300,000 people, probably the biggest city on earth at the time, but they worshiped many gods. There was a, a large ziggurat, that, a large temple in the center of Ur where they worshiped the moon god called Nana. And so Abraham's family, or Terah's father and his whole family, they were actually pulled in to this worship. They actually were worshiping other gods. And so let me, let me show you, let me prove to you this. Throughout the Bible, you're going to see them talking back about Abraham, and this is something we do as believers. All the scripture, even when you're reading about ancient civilizations, they're lessons for all of us. That's why we're studying Abraham. So Joshua, one of the leaders hundreds of years later, is talking to his people about Abraham. So it says in Joshua 24, 2 through 3, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father, Abraham, from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. You see, it's always the sinful nature to move towards the worship of other gods. The main gods that people typically worship are money, sex, and power. And there was plenty of all of that in Ur of the Chaldeans. And so living in this place, this Ur of the Chaldeans, Terah had been drawn into starting to worship other gods. Maybe some were pagan deities and others were money, sex, and power, but he's worshiping other gods. But you see, God always has a divine pull to pull us out of the worship of created things and to pull us out of things that will destroy us into following him. And so that is what God had done. You see, this has always been God's way. If you track the, 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 the story of mankind, we go back to Genesis chapter one. So we move back now. Let's go back 10 chapters from where we are. You see that God creates the world and he actually says, all of this I give to you. He blesses man and woman with it. He sets them up perfectly. And he says, now, I, I, I want you to, to actually rule the earth and subdue it. I want you to actually take care of it for me. The problem is that the enemy comes and deceives us and wants to steal us away from God's plan. The enemy comes and says, you know, God's way is not the best. You should be like God, and you should do what you want. And so he deceives man and woman, he deceives Adam and Eve, and sin enters the world. And then what you see is this crazy snowball into sin. So after Genesis 2, you all of a sudden see sin, and by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, it says that all men and women were sinful, and they're just destroying each other, and even every act and intent of their heart and mind was sinful. So what does God do? God always looks for a person whose heart is after his, and he puts a divine pull on their life. He found a guy named Noah who actually had a heart for God, and he literally pulled him into a boat. Now, here's the thing you gotta understand, and this hit me this week. Do you know how long it took Noah to build the ark? You know, we think that God's like, okay, I'm frustrated with man, I'm just gonna end it, send a flood. Do you know that Noah was building that ark for 125 years. Noah was doing two things, building an ark and telling people to repent. God is patient. I just need you to understand that God is patient. And when he sees the sin in the world, he's always putting a divine pull on someone to raise them up to be righteous in a generation. So he pulls Noah into a boat and has descendants and, and, and all of a sudden he, he blesses this man. Now, here's the thing you got to understand about Noah. That there's no one that's perfect. And even men and women of God, they make mistakes. I love that the Bible's so clear about that. And so let me show you what happens with Noah, Genesis chapter 9. After he sees this amazing thing, God rescues him. He builds a boat. He brings on all the animals. And, and, and his family is the one that's filling the earth. It says this, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. You're like, awesome. You've got a vineyard now, bro. But it says, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and laid uncovered inside his tent. Oh, bummer, man. You're a man of God. Now you're drunk. Here's what I want to tell you. Um, 
there's no one perfect. If you're coming to church thinking, it's just going to make me a better person, um, that's not the point of this whole thing. The point of this whole thing is knowing God. And Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus paid for your sins. And Jesus puts his Holy Spirit in us and helps us live for him. But you know, every person I know, they still sin and they still mess up. And so this is what happened even with this great guy named Noah. And and so then what we're going to see next is how Noah's sons respond. You see, every person in this tent, you live in a sinful world. And no one in this tent has a perfect family. And so there's a question. Are we going to be pulled into the sin around us and the sin that comes down through our generations? Or are we going to let the divine pull, pull us into following God? Watch the difference between Noah's sons. Genesis 9.22, this is after Noah got drunk. He's laying uncovered in his tent. It says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father Noah naked and told his brothers outside. So he walks in and he's like, dad, in your birthday suit. And he, he runs outside. He's like, guys, you know, everyone thinks that dad's so awesome, but he's, he's drunk and naked, right? Now watch what, watch what the other brothers do. But, but Shem and Japheth take a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They pulled this garment over his shoulders Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. God is raising up people that in a sinful world will actually turn their faces the other way and say, I'm not gonna stare upon that sin. I'm not gonna gaze upon things that I shouldn't. Instead, even when people sin, I am going to cover them. I am gonna protect them. I'm not gonna gossip about them. I'm not gonna expose them. They're saying, even though sin's in my family line, even though sin's all around me, I'm not gonna look at that. Instead, I'm gonna be an instrument of covering. I'm gonna be an instrument of blessing. I'm gonna be an instrument of protecting. I'm gonna change the course of my family. So what happens? Noah's going to prophesy about the future of this one kid who came in and stared at him and gossiped about him and and these other that actually didn't take part in the sin and covered. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. And he also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. This is really sad, but this is showing the implications of the impact on the generations that our decisions have on us. So I want to put up a map Right now, I'm going to pull this over so you can see it. I want to put up a map to help you understand what happens because that was in Genesis chapter 9. We moved to Genesis chapter 10, and there's all of these people that are born. And a lot of times we just skip over these things. But what I'm encouraging you to do in this next month is actually go through the story and study it with me and, and to actually look up commentaries. We now have everything just at the touch of our fingers with commentaries and maps. So I just looked up a simple map of all the people and all the nations that came out of the life of Noah. And here they are. This is the nations of Genesis 10. Now, if you remember, God was speaking about Shem. He said, blessed 
be Shem. Okay, he's going to be blessed and he's going to prosper. And he said, cursed be Canaan. And Canaan's actually going to be subservient to Shem. Now, this is really interesting because if you look at the descendants of Canaan, they're all here in this blue spot. And when you start looking at them, you, and if you actually have studied the Bible, and if you haven't, I'm just going to bring you up to date on this, is these are the main enemies for the rest of Scripture of the Israelites. The Hittites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. So you probably remember Philistine, that's Goliath who fought, big giant Goliath was a Philistine who, who fought David. So these are the main enemies. So right there, what you start seeing is how one decision starts just reaping havoc on generations. Uh, put this book cover up. In uh, about 150 years ago, there was a very famous study in the United States a uh, very famous work by a guy named A.E. Winship. There's A.E., handsome guy right there. And it was, a, it was a comparison between the Jukes and the Edwards. What happened was that there was a prison warden, and he kept visiting different prisons, and he continued to find people in six different prisons that all belonged to the same family. They belonged to the family of a man named Max Jukes. And so he started giving himself to a, a deep study because in every prison he went to, there were descendants of Max Jukes. And so he thought, what, what started with Max Jukes? Now, here was the interesting thing about Max Jukes. Max Jukes wasn't the serial killer. He wasn't this, this horrible bank robber. Max Jukes was actually a very popular, fun-loving guy. So Max Jukes was this popular, fun-loving guy. But the thing about Max is he didn't want to live in community. He didn't want to be a part of any kind of church, and he just wanted to do his own thing and have fun in life. So Max moved out on the shores of this beautiful lake in New York just so he wouldn't have to go to school. He wouldn't have to, to deal with other people. He could just hunt and fish and give himself to his own pleasures. Now, it started off sounding like it was fine. He wasn't this great guy, but he certainly wasn't that bad. But what started happening through the generations, is that community that built up around him became a den of robbers, of vulgarity, of sensuality. And by the end of his study, when, when this guy did the study in 1879, there were now 1,200 descendants of Max Jukes. Let me read to you the list of the people. It says, of these descendants... 310 of them were professional paupers, meaning they just lived in poor houses and were taken care of by the state. There were 300 of the 1,200 were, one in four, died in infancy. They died as children because of lack of good care and good conditions. 190 of the 1,200 were prostitutes. 50 of the women were lived notorious lives of debauchery, so known they weren't prostitutes, but known for their crazy sexual es escapades. 400 men and women were physically wrecked early by their own wickedness. There were seven murders. 60 were habitual thieves who spent an average of, of 12 years in prison. There were 130 criminals convicted uh, for crime, and this family in the 1870s had cost the state $1.2 million dollars. 
Now, he looked, okay, is there, you know, something that juxtaposed that when someone actually gives their life to obeying the Lord and actually gives them their life to uh, study of Scripture? And he found a family whose origin started at the same time as Max Jukes. They found a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, a student of the Word who decided to uh, marry a godly woman and try to raise their family under the Lord. Now, he didn't have as many descendants where there were 1,200 Jukes. There were 729 descendants of Jonathan Edwards, and this is what he found of the 729. 300 were preachers, 65 college professors, 13 university presidents, 60 authors of good books, didn't even show the bad books, three United States congressmen, and one vice president, and it says, barring one grandson who married a questionable woman, the family had cost the state not a single dollar. Not a single dollar. Why do I share this with you? I share because the decisions you make to follow the divine pull, when you actually let God pull you into friendship with him, he pulls you out. When, 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 you're, when you're about, men, when you're about to open up your computer or about to flip on your phone to some questionable material, but you're like, oh, I know there's a, there's a wrestle in me. That's God. And when you make that decision to not go into that, you're setting up generations for blessing. Women, when you're, you're, you know, you're, you're standing around with the other moms and, and one mom starts gossiping about some family and you're about to say something, but you just feel something pulling you and you decide not to, God doesn't just bless you. He sets up generations for blessing. Students, when you're, you're at your school and you're feeling like, oh, I don't know this answer and I'm about to look at my neighbor and about to cheat and you go, no, but something's pulling me. Like, no, I shouldn't do it. And you don't do it. It's not just a blessing for you. You bless the generations to follow you. Every time you follow that divine pull that's always pulling you out of selfishness and sinfulness. You are blessed and you set up generations for blessings. Do you know the decisions you make today will impact your descendants of tomorrow? The decisions you make today are so much bigger than yourself. So let's go back to the next map. This is amazing. Gonna move this again. <clears throat> so this is a similar map. Here is Canaan, Israel again. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, Israel. Uh, Italy would be up here. This is Africa down here. I don't know if you're able to see from where, where you're at, but here you see the word Canaan. This is the land of the Canaanites. Now, remember Shem, his descendants were over here. They had prospered in this land of Ur, the Chaldeans. And then God speaks. God speaks. And so Terah, the father of Abraham and Abraham, they take off. And they go on this 600-mile journey this 600-mile journey, and end up. And God takes him into Canaan and says, this land doesn't belong to these people. I'm giving it to you. And when I was over in Israel three years ago, guess who that belongs to? 6,000 years later, it belongs to the descendants of Abraham. God always fulfills his promises. And the decisions that were made by Ham to participate in sin versus Shem to cover up sin and to walk away from it, they had a dramatic effect on the generations. God fulfilled it. And so you see this migration that he took, and God ended up giving him that land. Let's continue on 
in the story. Because I, I hope you see, let me just show you this real quick, that verse 1 of chapter 11, um, you know, a lot of times when we get to these lists that talk about genealogies, you just want to step over them. You just want to skip over them. Guys, we live in the most amazing day where you can actually just take your computer, take your phone when you're looking at a verse and write in, when you, when you get to something you don't understand or it's confusing, write in commentary for this verse. Like type in the word commentary and you'll get wisdom from the last 200 years of commentaries to explain things to you. Now, here's what the scripture says in Genesis 11.1. We had this guy named Noah Remember, Noah had two sons. He had Ham that went one direction, Shem that went the other. Let's put Genesis 11 up here right now. Genesis 11 says this. This is the account of Shem. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's go back a little. This is the account of Shem's family. Remember, he is the one who actually honored his father. He didn't jump into sin. And so two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxed. Now, some of you that are pregnant and are looking for a good name for your son, I want to highly encourage you, no one is going to be named Arfaxid. Um, you're going to find some great, I mean, these lists are great just to look for names that no one else has, right? I mean, you can be so cool with Arfaxid, Shayla, go to the next one. Here's some great name, Peleg, right? There's so many Johns. Who's naming their kid Peleg? Anyway, <clears throat> let's keep going. Um, after he became the father of Ru, uh, Peleg, oh, let's keep going. Uh, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. So remember from Shem, who made the righteous decision, all of a sudden he's setting up this family line to have some world changers, to have some world savers. After he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram. Abram would see the promise of going and inheriting the land of Canaan. It's just absolutely amazing. But let's, just, let's keep going because there's some other incredible things that I want to show you. Let's jump now to um, the next part of Genesis 11. It says, now the world had one language and had one common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Let's keep going. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now watch this. You're going to see how the world started spinning into sinfulness and selfishness again. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. All of a sudden, man is giving into the sinful nature again. What's he saying? He's saying, we want to stay here on this plane. We, we, we all speak the same language. Let's just stay here and let's get comfortable and let's build a city. Do you, do you know that this is a direct affront to what God had said when he created man and woman? Remember, he makes man and woman, he sees it as good and he says, 
Now, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And man say, oh, I like this plane right here. I want to stay right here. You see, there's always going to be a battle in your flesh to, to hunker down, to be comfortable, to just amass and to say, no one touch this. This is mine. Mine, 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 mine. You don't have to teach a baby to say mine. Have you noticed that? You don't need to like teach a baby, hey, when another kid comes, slap them, bite them and say mine. No, that, that's just in our sinful nature to just want to hoard, to gather, and to not move. But God is saying, no, people, I want to spread you out through the whole earth because I'm going to use you as my ambassadors to extend my kingdom of order and beauty and blessing to everyone. And they said, no, mine. And in fact, they weren't content just with that. They were like, and in fact, we want to be like God. We want to build a tower up to heaven. So God's not the only one in heaven. We're in heaven. We're putting ourselves up there. And then they said, and we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make a great name for ourselves. You see, this is, this is the sinful nature. It's, I, I'm trying to make a name for myself. I'm trying to hoard and gather. I'm, I'm trying to be like God. And you see, we're seeing that again in our society today. We're trying to cast off restraint. We don't want prayer in schools anymore. It's, it's all about man. We don't, we don't want to, to honor God. We, we're not teaching people to be humble anymore. We're, not, we're throwing off restraint. We're hoarding, and this is what's going on. So what does God do in response to that? He does the same thing again like he did with Noah. He calls out a person that's set apart. He calls out a man named Abram. He calls him to go on a journey with him. We want to build a, a city with a, a tower that, that reaches to heaven. <clears throat> so here's what God does. Genesis 11, 5 through 9. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower where people were building. The Lord said, if there's one people speaking the same language, they began to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. So this was the Tower of Babel. This was at the place of Babylon. You'll see throughout the Bible that Babylon symbolizes man's strength. There's always a sinful nature desire to just hoard, to build our, for our own self, to make a name for our own self, to be our own God. And God says, no, I'm going to oppose that. And he confuses the languages and spreads people out throughout the whole earth. Now, why did God do that? So that we would be desperate and we would call out for him and need him. And when we find him, we find abundant life. You heard earlier in the service different missionaries that have gone all over the world that are part of this church. What's one of the first things they do? They learn the language because the languages have been scattered and mixed up. There's over 7,000 languages on earth. But why did God do that? He did that so that we would know our need for him. And then God would send people that are selfless that would say, I'd actually give my life to go and tell people that there's a living God who loves them and call them back to be his people. God's always making a way for everyone to know his goodness. You know, I'm talking about this divine pull, and some of you guys are like, man, there's not a divine pull in my life. Instead, I've just, my, my dreams, my plans have been blocked. I, I feel like I, I haven't, I, I feel like I've just been stopped. Things haven't gone well for me. Well, what I didn't tell you in my story about flying out the RV and being pulled back in 
was that it was in a greater context of a story of my heart problem. My heart problem happened in my junior high years. You see, all I wanted to do in life was be a famous football player. I wanted to go play college for Baylor Bears. I wanted to go on and be a professional quarterback. That was my goal. My dad was the football hero of our city. He had the big D1 offers for the, the national championships. He went on to be a, a, a college uh, football player. And that was my dream. That is what I wanted. And so I'd even transferred from a little school to this big school in junior high and actually won the starting position as a quarterback. But it was all about me. It was all about making a name for myself. The first thing I did when I got that quarterback position is I stole my best friend's girlfriend. I used my power, my influence to just start uh, being with different girls, to start making a name for myself, uh, for the glory being about me, and boom, I get stopped. I have a heart problem that lands me in the hospital for the next two years, up until the beginning of high school. I was in the hospital after hospital, and at that time, I shook my finger at God and said, God, why? I'm actually a Christian. I grew up in a Christian family. Why not John? He's a lot worse than me. Have you ever said that before? <clears throat> you like look at someone, you're like, what about that dude? What about that girl? I'm so much better, why do I have COVID? Why did I get in the car accident? Why do I have this bad boss? Why do I have this sister that's not, why do I have this, right? Can I tell you that so many times us getting blocked is actually the divine pull. It's the divine pull. Oh man, I was so upset that I lost my dreams about, uh, about being a quarterback. It absolutely devastated me. But you know what? God was pulling me into something better for me. Uh, the, the funny thing is, is um, I was a quarterback, but I never could throw further than 30 yards. Um, I probably wouldn't have gone that far. God had something. He, God looked at me and said, he has a lot better mouth than he does arm. <clears throat> and here's the crazy thing. God might have blocked me, but now I actually have three sons that are the quarterbacks of their football teams. You, you don't know the, so the, the, the moral of the story isn't football bad. Uh, the, the moral of the story is that you don't know that your blocked doors, your shut doors, the things that aren't working out are often God's divine pull pulling you into the place of greatest blessing. Now I thank God for those shut doors because he changed my life and he set us up, my family up, to impact so many other people. So look at this. I want you to look. At this, in Genesis chapter 12, this is the last scripture we're going to look at, but it's kind of the preeminent scripture about Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country. Say go. Let me tell you, this, this journey of faith with Jesus, this walking with God, that word go is something you've got to wrap your mind around because God's always taken us to higher heights, but you can't get to higher heights if you don't go. He always wants more for you. He's taking you on a journey. It's hearing his voice and obeying, but you've got to decide, I'm going to leave what makes sense and go on a journey with him. Go from your country. I'm sure Abraham was like, what? My country's so prosperous. I live in Ur of the Chaldeans. Go from your people. Wait, my people. My, I mean, like, they're, they are the mathematicians. They're the business people. They're the government people. They have tablets. No one else has tablets. We are the dudes. Go from your your people, go from your father's household. I'm sure he's like, what, but my, my dad, he's a rich sheep herder. 
I don't want to leave the sheep. He's like, go from all of those to the land I will show you. (laughs) Can we put that second map back up? He said, go, and it doesn't always make sense. I often call it suspended in foolishness. God tells you go, but often doesn't tell you where. Have you ever noticed that? But Christian, if you actually want to see the miracles of God, you got to leap when you don't see where the next step is. I can't, I mean, that was happening to us this past two weeks as a family. And guess what? The the blessings and the open doors were beyond what I was dreaming of. But there's that moment where you're just leaping out there and you're like, I am a fool. I I have just jumped out into space and I don't know if if anything's going to catch me. That is the life of faith because look, he said, go into the land I will show you. And he had this nice little 600-mile journey on foot before he even gets here. And then when he gets here, these people are bad. They don't like him. They don't, they don't say, welcome. Can I just tell you, every time that God says, do something, you're not just going to have a standing ovation. Sometimes God says, hey, this is where I'm taking you. And people are like, eh, I don't want you here. Right? That's why we got to keep reading the Bible. Because we see that with God, all things are possible even when it looks impossible for man. Go to the land I'll show you and watch this, guys. We're coming to the end. I will make you into a great nation. God never intended for life to just be about little you. God always has something bigger. He's always wanting to be bigger. He's always wanting to impact more people. When you become a Christian, you become a world impactor. Every single person in here, he wants you to influence the world. What's God's answer to a world that's in a pandemic and pain and in political brokenness and in fear and in economic uncertainty and all kinds of challenges? His answer is you. And he says, believer, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to actually take you and make you into a great people. And then he says, and I will bless you. God wants to impact many people, but don't ever forget, he actually cares about little you. You see, some of us didn't grow up with parents that actually were always thinking about our best. But the Bible says that God, he wants to bless you. Say, he wants to bless me. Say it again, he wants to bless me. I'm not preaching some prosperity, name it, claim it, blab it, and grab it gospel. What I'm teaching you is the word of God where he says, when you go out with me, when you're following me, I actually want to bless you. Do you know that's the heart of a father? I think, I I strategize. Steph and I talk, we plan, we pray for our children to be blessed. If you wanna know what keeps me up at night, it's setting up my children for blessing. That's the heart of a good father. And the Bible says the same about God. It says he doesn't sleep or slumber. What's he doing? I think he's thinking about you. He's a good father, and he wants to bless you. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. You know, there's a desire, whether we know it or not, in every one of us to be great. But we get it all perverted, and we think, you know, okay, oh, well, that means being on the front of a magazine and showing all my, all my skin, and it means running into the end zone and being like, oh, right? And it's all about me and, it's, and having this much money, and I'm, whoo, you know? And, and God's like, no, there's a greatness that supersedes that immature, self-centered, self-boasting. you know, boasting. There's a greatness in me. I will make your name great. God wants to give 
you a great name. Why? So that you will lead people to him. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. He wants you to be a blessing in your workplace. He wants you to be a blessing in your neighborhood. He wants you to be a blessing in your family. He wants you to be a blessing among your friends. God wants to give you a great name so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And I love this phrase, and all peoples. Say all peoples. If you didn't know, this is why Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is so important for us. It needs to be so important for you. It's the prototype of how God leads a man or a woman, and this is why our church is named All Peoples, if you wondered why we got this crazy name, and if you wonder why every week you're hearing about this person moving to this country, and this person's going to Africa, and this person's going to Asia, this person's going to Mexico, you're like, why not just San Diego? God loves San Diego, but he says, believers, you're going to be a blessing to all peoples. You're going to be a blessing to all peoples. I want to bless the whole world through you. So Abram went. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. So Abram went. There's a divine pull on your life. And our job is just to listen and go with it. You don't have to make the chart of your own life. You don't have to pull yourself by, up by your bootstraps. You don't have to make something great of your life. You just need to respond to the divine pull because men and women, young people, God is speaking all over this tent and God is pulling and your role is just to go with him. Why don't we stand up?